This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is my tale to tell and I'm Stephanie Fruin. In 2019, I gathered around a very small table various groups of strangers who wanted to start writing their memoirs, or at least writing some of their personal stories for their families to one day read. They were generous enough to allow me to record them reading their stories and to share them on air with listeners like you. Given the current situation of the COVID-19 lockdown, I can't see me sitting around a table with workshop attendees for quite some time, so I thought I would conduct my workshop over the airways. The world might be in lockdown, but our stories are not. For many, the idea of writing a memoir seems arrogant, and the response I mostly get from people when I ask them if they'd consider writing down their stories is, who'd be interested in reading about my life? I've done nothing interesting, nothing important. I'm no celebrity or sports hero. But I think they're wrong. I believe every life is interesting, and committing that life to paper or some digital format to be forever remembered has a part to play in conserving our history for generations to come. Now, more than ever, recording our history is incredibly important. We must make available for our children and their children to come information about our lives, lifestyles, health and habits, for who knows what clues lie in these stories as to what is to come in the future. So over this strange and uncertain COVID-19 time, I'm going to take you through the steps to get you writing your memoir. Do not be daunted by this project. I will make it easy and enjoyable. In part one of this workshop, I gave you the topic of what's in a name as a starting point for your memoir. This time, I want you to think of a turning point in your life. Has there been a moment when you needed to make a decision that affected everything else from that point on? Or was there an external influence that had you taking a different path in your life than what you thought you would? Maybe this influence was an illness, a person or a place. Did you have to choose between career paths, jobs or hobbies? There are moments in time that will affect all others. At the time of their occurrence, you may not be aware of its influence on your life, but looking back, it's clear that it was a turning point for you. So for your next story, your topic is a turning point. You'll have more than one, but one might just stand out more than the others. Remember, your story shouldn't be too long, no more than 750 to 1,000 words. By giving yourself a word limit, you will stick to the story. You'll get rid of the waffle. Give yourself a few days to ponder over the topic, and then write it. Read it out loud. That's the best way to pick up mistakes, and edit it. There may be some of you, when you're done, you'd like to send it to me to have a read and potentially have it read on air. Then by all means, email it to me at mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. Coming up are examples of stories with the theme, A Turning Point, written by attendees of one of my workshops. So have a listen and you will see that every story is different. There is no right or wrong answer to this theme. You just have to get on and do it. I'll have a different topic for you next time. So until then, get writing. My name is Ruby, and this is my tale to tell. A turning point in life. In our bedroom, there's a large oil painting of me hanging on one of the walls. Oh wait, I rephrase. It's a huge painting of me, about 120 centimeter by 80 centimeters, created from a nude photo shoot that I did in May 2015. 
I'm standing sideways and the view is such that one can see my whole back, but only a side contour of my front body. My skin glistens under yellow spotlights shining on me, and it's easy to see tiny little dents and the impressions my spine makes on my skin. It takes me by surprise how comfortable I am being in my natural state, and sometimes I'm lost for words. I grew up as a Muslim woman in the slums of Karachi, Pakistan, and I was taught to always cover myself. A good w Muslim woman kept her gaze lowered in public, covered her body so her beauty didn't distract the men of the society. As a young child and in later years, I always wore loose clothes so as not to show the shape of my body. Though I didn't wear a proper hijab, I always wore a scarf over my head. This was quite different than many of the other girls who covered their faces and in some cases even their eyes. It was considered inappropriate for a woman to think about her own self in any pleasurable or appreciative kind of way. I didn't dare think about my sexuality. I didn't dare think I was a beautiful woman. I didn't even look at myself in the mirror till I was in my late 20s. Years have passed and I have managed to leave Pakistan and live in Western countries. I've attended many workshops, but I still find it hard to embrace my femininity. It is now year 2008. I'm attending the Love, Intimacy and Sexuality workshop, a clothing optional event. And though I'm here, I don't think I'm ever going to take my clothes off. I feel awkward. As the workshop progresses, slowly other people's clothes start coming off. I look around and I see all shapes, all sizes. I see awkwardness, I see shyness, and suddenly I know I'm not alone anymore. The time is now or never. I take off my clothes and let my curly and wild hair out. I'm naked, though funny enough, I don't feel naked. We're all sitting in the group and the facilitator asks if any of us want to speak in front of the group. I stand up. Looking at these naked bodies, I feel nervous. But it's time to own what I've just done. It's time to declare. I start speaking. I am a Muslim woman raised to disown my sexuality and cover my body. And here I am standing naked in front of you. And then I burst out crying. It's too much to bear. The respect that I feel in the eyes of these men and women is not something that I have ever experienced. The good feeling just doesn't sit right. Where is the abuse? The absence of it makes me feel empty. But wait, it's not over yet. In the next activity, I'm asked to lay on the floor and five men and women ask for permission to caress and kiss my body. I'm trembling, but I say yes. They ask me where the no-go areas are, and I point towards my pelvic region. I lay horizontal on my tummy, and this feels okay. Their touch feels like a massage, and their kisses feel like little pecks. My body starts to relax. Very soon, though, I'm asked to turn over. Things completely shift for me when I turn to lay on my back. I feel exposed. I feel vulnerable and very scared, but I keep quiet and let tears run down my face. Their kisses and caresses don't feel sexual in any way. Instead, I feel like a goddess, 
My body feels like a temple receiving adoration, respect and admiration from these humans. I start sobbing. This is the first time in my life that I'm exposed, but I'm not abused. This is the first time in my life that my femininity is worshipped and admired. My muscles don't know how to be. The years of trying to hide myself and living with tense and contracted muscles has left my body contorted. It wants to break free, but it just doesn't know how. It takes me hours to recover from this experience. The journey from that point of complete bewilderment to the nude photo shoot in 2017 has been long, but I have felt that somehow embracing my sexuality has allowed me to embrace more of my own power. I have allowed myself to trust people, but more importantly, I have allowed myself to trust men. In a non-sexual kind of way, my fellow workshop mates have taught me how to be intimate with myself and with others. Love, sex, and intimacy have Why never felt the same. Be seen when I open my eyes to find inspiration, I search for the best I can see. If I settle for less, I won't be the best I can be. The following story deals with the experience of rape. Should you or anyone you know require information or support regarding this topic, contact Victim Support on 0800 842 846. I am Heather and I have a story to tell. Turning Point As a young child, I was ambitious to go to university when I grew up and have a good career. My primary school marks suggested that that would be a piece of cake. However, my parents were not at all pushy. On the contrary, I do not think my mother wanted either of her daughters to excel to the point where it threatened her. The best thing she recommended to me was that I might be able to serve on the cosmetics counter of a shop. So my ambitions were my own entirely. I rather like the Hebrew joke that says, How do you make God laugh? Answer, tell him you have plans. And that is how it was for me. When I had my first period at 12 years old, when at intermediate school, my body reacted very badly with almost unendurable pain. It interrupted my attendance at school. This continued year after year. I attended the family doctor and nothing he did worked. I got so wild with this when, at the beginning of another bout of pain and sweating, while I was at Christchurch Girls High School, I made my way to his surgery, which was in Cathedral Square. He was outraged when he saw this sweating wreck turn up among his patients and kick me up. I had to collapse on the stairs until I managed to struggle to the bus and home. I was outraged with him and never attended him again. Then my mother took me to a gynecologist who prescribed codeine tablets Take as many as you like, but they didn't work either. I used to sweat so much as I writhed in pain that my sheets were wringing wet and had to be changed up to three times a day. Every three weeks, I missed a week of school. I could catch up with most subjects, but not mathematics. 
because it needed that continuous attendance for understanding. I absolutely hated my maths teacher, who was also my form teacher. I asked to speak to her once and confided in her my health problem. I begged to have some extra help. She publicly scolded me. She refused to do it and used humiliating language in front of others. Unfortunately, she didn't die until the following year after I left the school. At one time, she was away sick and we had a relief teacher for six weeks. She was an English woman and was so straightforward and clear that I felt a lot of stress leave me as I managed to catch up. This teacher was also very kind and respectful. I cannot remember her name. Why is it that the best and the kindest leave a memory of their behaviour, but not necessarily their names? Nasty, sadistic people burn their names into you forever. Alas, my nemesis returned, and my mass performance returned to zero. Once I had a period attack while at school, they put me in sick bay, and the teachers were shocked at what I went through. They recommended to my mother that I didn't have the physical strength for an academic life and it would be best if I left the school and pursued something else. An interesting attitude when you think of disabled people such as Stephen Hawking, for example. That was the end of my university dream. I really wondered how I could hold down a job, but I had to. First in the art department at Whitcomb and Tombs, which came to an end when I was admitted to hospital for a dilatation and curettage in the continuing attempt to sort out my menstrual problem, my mother had told the family doctor, Dr. Erber, an Austrian Jew, what I was having done. He was up in arms about it and said, she won't be a virgin now. They were always going on about being a virgin in films and books. After the surgery, I felt somehow second-hand, although only surgical instruments had touched me. I spent a while working at a lawyer's office until my brother-in-law got me a job at an appliance shop where I would sell fridges, washing machines and the like, sign people up for credit and keep the office and the phone. I was under a manager, but he left soon after I arrived there for some reason and I was left in sole charge. I was 15 years old. After a while, the owner put on a staff party. I had never gone out on my own to something like that, and I pestered my mother to be allowed to attend. My mother gave permission only if I had a chaperone of her choosing, a young woman in her twenties going through a divorce. The party happened on a Friday evening in early March, at the end of the working week in those days, 1958. I was enjoying myself, but getting uneasy about the way my boss was treating me. He was a married man with children, and I hadn't even liked him. I told my chaperone that I was worried, and would she please keep with me the whole evening. My fears didn't seem to bother her, and she readily got out of the car and went off with a good-looking Dutchman to have a one-night stand. I was left in the car of my boss, who pounced. He was a trained boxer and six foot two inches and 35 years old. I didn't stand a chance. 
I put up a good fight but was dragged across the road into Hagley Park and raped. This was the single most horrific thing that had happened to me and I still feel that way about it. When I got home, I immediately went to the bathroom and bathed and bathed. I told my mother what had happened. I don't think my parents knew how to handle it. My mother asked if I wanted to go to the police. I knew that rape complainants were badly dealt with in the courts and were always made to feel that they had caused it. I knew that lawyers would make out that they were bad girls regardless of the truth. I didn't want to be raped twice, first by the man and then by the legal system. They used to put details in the papers back then, especially a paper called The Truth. So I said, no, no police. Back then there was no rape crisis. I was never the same again. My mother was angry with the chaperone, who, as was her wont, basically shrugged her shoulders. To rub salt in the wound, the rapist said to me, well, you weren't a virgin anyway. The operation had broken my hymen. Now I knew what their Jewish doctor had meant right. I was never the same person again. I struggled to cope with everyday life and eventually had a full breakdown. I cried every day and couldn't go to work. This went on for weeks. At first I had not been able to keep food down and vomited every day. My parents thought that Queen Mary Hospital at Hanmer might help. I wasn't drinking or taking drugs, but back then they still took nervous breakdown cases, not just addicts. When the rapist heard about this, he had the nerve to come and visit my parents and talk them out of that idea. He said he was going to take care of me. The only care he had in mind was a continuing affair. Looking back, I don't know how they could have listened to him. He continued to pursue me right up until my marriage. After the wedding in 1961, we flew to Auckland, where my husband was studying architecture, and that was the end of contact with the rapist. I had told my husband in the early stages of our relationship about the rape, so he knew all about it. For years afterwards, I had continuing and harrowing nightmares and would be woken because I was screaming. Eventually time formed calluses over the psychic injury. My name is Karen and this is my tale to tell, a turning point. My father left school at age 14 and worked in a shoe factory for most of his adult life. It wasn't well paid and we lived on the breadline. We never went hungry but we didn't have much and a lot of the time the only new items I wore growing up were my underpants. Our clothes were either passed on from others or had been bought from the St Vincent de Paul op shop. I remember going to school with second-hand shoes on one day and when a friend pointed out they weren't new and they were also ugly, I kicked her in the shins and she ran off crying. My parents struggled financially and I'm sure this contributed to the strain in their marriage which led to a less-than-happy childhood for my three siblings and I. 
I left home at not quite 17, having been told I was too moody. Mum was sick of it, and it was time I got a job and made my own way in life. I went to my bedroom and cried, as I really wanted to go to university and get a degree, but I knew better than to argue. So I applied for a job as an office junior at Taylor's Dry Cleaners. I went to the interview and got the job. Because we lived out in the country, it was decided I should board in town to make it easier to get to work each day. So I left home and moved in to board with a lady in her 60s in Rickerton. We got on well and after a few months, I decided to get a waitressing job a couple of nights a week to save money as I wanted to travel. I worked both jobs, saved hard and improved my qualifications doing night classes at Polytech. I changed jobs a couple of times, worked for a law firm for a few months and then at the BNZ for about four years. A week after my 21st birthday, I flew to London on my own to begin my big OE. I had saved enough to leave some money in the bank for when I came home to keep me going until I could get a job. Fifteen months later, I was back, ready to settle down in Christchurch, the city I loved. I got an admin job working for a real estate company. Many of my friends had partners, and some were beginning to settle down and get married. I decided I needed to get involved in some sport so I could meet more people, so a couple of girlfriends and I joined a badminton club. That was a brilliant move. It was a big club with lots of people my age, and badminton is a really social sport. I started off in F grade. That's the lowest you can go, in case you hadn't already guessed. And I was presented with a cup at the club prize giving for the most improved player. I played inter-club competition with my fellow F graders, and we had loads of fun and lots of laughs. The club captain would regularly ring me at work to see how our team had got on at the previous night's competition. During one of these conversations, he asked me what I was doing on Friday night. I'd bumped into him and a group of his badminton friends a few times while out on a Friday or Saturday night, and I assumed he was inviting me along to join them all. I asked who was going, and he said, just you and me. And when I asked where we were going, he said, how about the Waitangi Room at Noah's? The Waitangi Room was a really posh, pricey special occasion restaurant upstairs in the stylish Noah's Hotel near Cathedral Square. I replied, that's a bit fancy, isn't it? To which he said, well, we could go somewhere else if you like. The penny finally dropped. He was asking me on a date. Being fiercely independent, I agreed, only if I could pay for my own dinner. I remember biking home that day with my friend Helen, telling her I had a date on Friday night with a guy from Badminton, but I stressed that it would be just a one-off because he was shorter than me and I was only taking the advice of a friend's mum who'd said if someone asked you out, you should always say yes, no matter who he was, as everyone deserves a chance. Well, John made a great impression on that first date at the Waitangi Room. When he picked me up, he was smartly dressed, he gave me flowers and he opened the car door for me like a true gentleman. He even insisted on paying the entire bill. I was definitely impressed. When he dropped me home, he didn't try to kiss me or invite himself in for coffee. I decided that tall men were overrated and we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary last October. Two years after we were married, I was still working for the real estate firm, but it was a stressful job and I was tired of it. There have been many turning points in my life, but I realised I was at a major one right now. I was 27, my biological clock was ticking and I wanted to have children, but I still really wanted to go to university and get that degree. I was torn. I thought about it long and hard. I could keep working and maintain my financial independence, or I could let my husband support me while I studied for a degree. John and I discussed it and he wisely said it was up to me and that he would support me in whatever I decided to do. I took a deep breath and handed in my resignation at work. It was scary. I had been financially self-reliant since I'd left home 10 years before, at almost 17. 
and had vowed to myself that I would remain that way, never wanting to depend on anyone else for money, not even my husband. The day I resigned from my job, a huge bunch of flowers arrived at the office for me, from John, with a note attached which said, I'm so proud of you. I know this decision wasn't an easy one for you to make, but I know you can do this and I love you so much. I enrolled at Canterbury University as an adult student to do a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology and graduated three years later, aged 30, seven months pregnant with our first child. Motherhood was yet another turning point, but that's another story. Come away with me in the night Come away with me and I will write you a song Come away with me is produced by me, Stephanie Fruin, and engineered by Peter Rattray at Plains FM Christchurch. The theme tune was composed by Louise Ayling and performed by Louise Ayling, Peter Royal and Stephanie Fruin. If you'd like to take part in My Tale to Tell, contact mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. No life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. Memories of us.